The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Dennis. Today, parents, teachers and pupils rally in Westminster to fight the government's plans to axe the Building Schools for the Future programme. I think David Cameron will be telling Michael Gove to listen, to be honest, because um, the strength of feeling is very, very high now. When I saw the toilets, I actually came home and said to my son, don't go to the toilets at school because they're so disgusting. Also today, the big society. David Cameron promises to create communities with oomph. These areas came to us and said, look, we want more power and control. You've spoken about it for long enough, so now give it to us. So that's exactly what we're going to do. We join Chris Patton on a visit to Gaza. This child uh, will be on the ventilator for the rest of his life and the hospital would like him to be able to return home and the parents to have a ventilator at home but with power cuts of um, at least eight hours a day and up to 12 hours a day it's just impossible. Europe's financial crisis intensifies as Ireland's debt is downgraded by a credit ratings agency. Everybody's trying to walk a tricky tightrope at the moment but um, the evidence of both Greece at one extreme and Ireland at the other extreme is that in some cases no matter what you do the debt problem is just too big and veterans of the salvage operation to bring back a national treasure to British shores are reunited with the SS Great Britain. I had a feeling that this ship really wanted to come home again because there were some things happening with the ship, with the weather in the Falklands, that really other ships would never have withstood. They would have broken in half, the blokes would have got fed up and gone home, but she seemed to have a will of her own and wanted to come home. First, our top story. As MPs debated the Academy's bill, which is being rushed through Parliament, teachers, parents and pupils, as well as construction workers, school governors, local councillors and MPs, attended a rally in Westminster against the scrapping of the £55 billion Building Schools for the Future programme. Today's Save Our Schools protest was organised by the teaching union NASUWT. The speakers included the Shadow Education Secretary, Ed Balls, the General Secretary of the TUC, Brendan Barber, as well as teachers and parents. I asked some of the demonstrators why they were there. Well, we're complaining about the fact that the uh, Building Schools for the Future programme has been cancelled in many schools. 700 schools nationally are being had their projects cancelled and it's affecting the most vulnerable in our society. I'm a teacher and I'm also an activist. Um, I believe that what's happening to the education system is appalling and it's this coalition government that's doing it. We're appalled at the kind of surreal version of education that's coming about through this kind of crazy uh, ideological notion of privatising education, really. It's to show our um, disgust with the cuts to uh, BSF and the effect it's had on schools, particularly in Liverpool, where I come from. Uh, there's, o- there's over £7 million already been invested in this, which has just gone. You know, we're talking about saving money, and, and that money has just been wiped away uh, to the detriment of the children of Liverpool. I'm Gordon Phillips, Principal at the Meadows Sports College in Oldbury in Sandwell. Because I'm a principal of a special school, my students are unable to speak for themselves, so they need advocates of the staff of the school and parents. So I've come down on their behalf to try and get our BSF money back 
and also our £25,000 match funding for being a sports college. Now, how has the um, decision to axe the Building Schools for the Future programme affected your school? Well, it's devastating because we've spent hours and hours contacting stakeholders for writing the BSF bid in the first place, and then that subsequently has been drafted three times. So not only have we created a you know, comprehensive document, the impact is on the quality of learning that we can offer our students. And our students deserve the very best, as all students in the country do. And as I said in my speech earlier on, um, the government had quality uh, teachers, they had quality resources, and that's why David Cameron is where he is, purely because of the excellent teaching he had, and surely he want that same education he had offered to everybody. I'm Lynn Stables, I've come from Fernwood School in Nottingham. Well, as I said in the speech, I was just appalled when I left school on Friday evening, um, and having never spoken in public or been involved in any politics in my life, I, I just as a parent, my son's my life, and as a parent, I was just disgusted. How's the decision to axe this um, building schools for the future program how's that affected your son's school it's affected it greatly um, as I said you know one of the buildings is crumbling around them and only has four years left to live uh, maximum the headmistress is very passionate about the school and the children absolutely terrific woman and it's only because of her leadership and the quality of teaching in the school that it performs as well as it does as I said brilliant reputation in the community parents move into Wollerton to get their kids into that school I don't want it to, to crumble down. I think investment needs to be made in it. I know investment needs to be made in it to keep it at a standard that, that is well, just basic. When I saw the toilets, I actually came home and said to my son, don't go to the toilets at school because they're so disgusting. Brendan Barber, can I ask you, what would you say to David Cameron who says that the uh, Building Schools for the Future programme was bureaucratic and inefficient? Uh, well, I just don't think the evidence bears that out. These, this expenditure has made a huge difference to over 4,000 schools, uh, schools that have been neglected for decades that uh, were in desperate need of, uh, of real improvement. And this is now a savage blow to 700 schools who have been told they're not worth investing in. Mr Balzer from The Guardian, um, are you encouraged by the turnout today? Very encouraged and uh, there's children and uh, parents and teachers coming from all over the country to um, be with us and what we know is it's Labour, it's Liberal, it's Conservative MPs all hearing from their constituents. People are very upset by losing their new school. It's economically the wrong thing to do but I think um, for the future of our education it's just, it's just wrong and I hope very much that Michael Gove will listen. I think David Cameron will be telling Michael Gove to listen to be honest because um, the strength of feeling is very very high now. Ed Balls and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash education. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. The Prime Minister says his plans for what he calls a big society will redistribute power to the man and woman on the street. David Cameron says he wants to end the days in which capable people become passive recipients of state help. You can call it liberalism, you can call it empowerment, you can call it freedom, you can call it responsibility, but I call it the big society. The big society is about a huge culture change where people in their everyday lives, in their homes, in their neighbourhoods, in their workplaces, don't always turn to officials, local authorities or central government for answers to the problems they face, but instead feel both free and powerful enough to help themselves and their own communities. It's about people setting up great new schools, businesses, helping people get trained for work, 
charities working in our prisons to rehabilitate offenders. It's about liberation, the biggest, most dramatic redistribution of power from elites in Whitehall to the man and the woman on the street. For a long time, the way that government has worked, top-down, top-heavy, controlling, has frequently had the effect of sapping responsibility, local innovation, and civic action. It's turned many motivated public sector workers into disillusioned, weary puppets of government targets. It's turned able, capable individuals into passive recipients of state help with little hope for a better future. It has sometimes turned lively communities into dull, soulless clones of one another. Our chief political correspondent is Nicholas Watt. The big society came under a lot of fire during the general election. A lot of Tory candidates said that it sort of dived on the doorstep because they couldn't really identify what the big society was. It's about devolving power. But what does that actually mean? So David Cameron travelled to Liverpool today and in a sense he was putting flesh on the bone. Uh, what he did is he says there's going to be a bank called the Big Society Bank that will fund um, some grassroots projects. Uh, but he also uh, said that there will be four areas uh, in the country, uh, he's calling them vanguard areas that will receive um, specific and detailed uh, attention uh, for projects that they've been pushing. And obviously the reason why he went to Liverpool um, is that Liverpool is one of those vanguard areas. The Big Society Bank, do we know how much money that will have to invest in community projects? Well, I mean, it's talking about using uh, the uh, funds from dormant bank accounts in England, bank and building society accounts, and the sum that's sort of doing the rounds today is £80 million, which to you and me is a lot. We could do a lot with that. But in terms of sort of reconfiguring society, uh, that's not going to go very far. How did he answer the charge that the big society is simply another way of saying cuts? Well, that's what uh, Labour are saying. And Ed Miliband, who is one of the Labour leadership contenders, has been doing the round of the telly and radio studios today. Uh, The reason why he takes an interest is that he used to be uh, minister for the third sector. That's a rather clunky Whitehall phrase um, that covers voluntary groups. And Ed Miliband was very much saying this is this is a, a sort of a nice, cuddly way, a Cameron cuddly way of covering cuts. What David Cameron says is, yes, the fiscal deficit is the biggest challenge we face. Yes, there are going to be serious cuts, but those cuts would have come in whoever uh, won the election. And uh, this goes much deeper than about imposing cuts. This is about our, my, David Cameron's conservative vision, a vision that he set out first, he would say, when he stood for the leadership of the Conservative Party in 2002, about empowering people. And he would say that... What happened under New Labour was that the state became too big, that the rules were too restrictive and that you were taking responsibility and judgment away from people who uh, weren't able to exercise any judgment because they would spend their lives uh, filling out forms. And what this is doing, David Cameron would say, is energising and empowering people um, at a local level. And yes, the government is involved in setting it up at the moment. And yes, the government, there'll be civil servants helping people in these vanguard areas, but that eventually you would empower the grassroots uh, to be able to take responsibility and uh, make those decisions themselves. Nick Watt. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. The former EU commissioner, Chris Patton, has urged Europe to be bolder in its approach to resolving conflict in the Middle East. During a visit to Gaza City, Patton was joined by The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent, Harriet Sherwood. 
Um, we've just arrived at the um, Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, a very crowded car park, with Chris Patton, veteran British politician, a former EU commissioner and now president of medical aid for Palestinians, which is why he is making this visit to Gaza, the first one since 2002, and we'll be talking to him later about his impressions of Gaza still under blockade um, and what the international community should be doing about it. Some buildings near the hospital has been destroyed completely. The wall of the hospital has been destroyed. Plenty of our rescuers, a blood banker, Ahmad Salut and others, just finishing their work, going, trying to go home. The doctor's telling Chris Patton that he's got 86 items of equipment that can't be used because they can't get the spare parts through the blockade. He's explaining that uh, with the X-ray equipment they have to cannibalise other um, pieces of machinery in order to try and keep other pieces of machinery going. Patton's asking about whether there are adequate blood supplies during the war on Gaza uh, 18 months ago. The doctor's saying they got more than a thousand units from Jordan and Egypt, um, but uh, there was tremendous need for blood during the conflict um, in which 1,400 Palestinians were killed. So we're in the car, just leaving the Shifa hospital now. Um, Chris, first impressions of what you saw there? Very dedicated doctors trying to do uh, an almost impossible job in circumstances which are hugely difficult. This has nothing to do with security. Um, it's one consequence of the punishment of a whole community. Um, I'm going to be seeing other aspects of life in Gaza over the next couple of days and I don't want to generalize too much um, at the outset but I've been to Gaza before three times this is the first time I've been since the siege began and since uh, the caste-led assault on Gaza and it's pretty horrendous um, you have to be careful how you use words because it's not um, a humanitarian crisis in the sense that development ministers like me in the past have seen in camps in Africa for example uh, in Sudan or Ethiopia but it's a, a long-running crisis which has big humanitarian consequences um, and uh, I very much hope that the international community will work rather harder to persuade um, the Israelis uh, that what is happening is not only illegal and immoral, but ineffective. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. The sovereign debt of Ireland has been cut by a credit ratings agency by one notch. Moody's said Ireland's growth prospects are weaker against the cost of rebuilding the country's crippled banking system. Ireland was one of the first countries to go into recession and it immediately began drastically cutting public spending. Reporting for The Guardian from Dublin, Lisa O'Carroll. Last week I was walking down the office district on a Monday night, which is generally a very 
you know, stay in night everywhere. And I just heard this throaty sound of a supercar, and it was a Maserati. And it, you know, you just have to laugh to yourself, going, you know, Ireland is in dire straits. But there's still money out there. People are still displaying their wealth. Um, but for the ordinary person, it's it's um it's it's fairly dire. Uh, I don't think anybody who's in a job doesn't fear for their job. Um, most people have taken a pay cut. It's certainly in the private sector, the public sector have been forced to take pay cuts. There are something like half a million unemployed. I think the percentage of um, unemployed in Ireland is uh, one of the highest percentages in Europe. Emigration is back up. Um, that was a story that had kind of disappeared from. Ireland during the Celtic type of years, you know, it was traditional that Irish people would leave and seek employment elsewhere. But in the Celtic Tiger years, that trend was reversed, but not for long. Yeah, there are a lot of people in in, in pretty dire straits, particularly young people. Um, what happened here was there was a, a huge panic about um, buying property. And as prices of property went up and up and up and money was cheap, um, Young people, you know, in their twenties, who may have been on, you know, less than thirty grand, were getting loans worth literally ten times the amount of their salaries. They are now in negative equity. Um, the uh, one-bedroom apartments I read uh, recently, one-bedroom apartments in Dublin have, have lost fifty percent of their value. So huge numbers of people in that situation up and down the country, and there is a general feeling that the government has bailed out the banks, but it's not bailing out the ordinary person. The Guardian's head of business is Dan Roberts, and he joins me now. Dan, Ireland's cut public spending, and its credit has still been downgraded. Yes, it was sort of poster child for austerity, really, in, um, in the sense that they took a decision pretty early on that they needed to make some savage cuts to their public spending in order to um, solve the debt problem and avoid a downgrade. And um, it looks like, even given the pain, which has been quite dramatic, uh, it hasn't been enough. Well, what could it have done differently? Well, it's beginning to beg the question whether many European countries, including maybe even the UK in the long run, perhaps can't avoid a downgrade because you're into this um, a situation where if you if you cut public spending too fast and too far, you slow the economy down to the point where your debt problem becomes even bigger because the debt stays the same, but your, your tax revenues shrink. Um, or if you kind of throw caution to the wind and carry on spending and try and stimulate and grow your way out of trouble, you've also got problems because the credit rating agencies don't believe you're serious about your debt in the long run. So um, everybody's trying to walk a tricky tightrope at the moment but um, the evidence of both Greece at one extreme and Ireland at the other extreme is that in some cases no matter what you do the debt problem is just too big. And Hungary I guess would fall into the Greece camp. Well they had a moment today when it looked like they might have been showing a bit of defiance and and, and, and telling the IMF where to go and and, and saying that they weren't prepared to do what they were being told to do to bring their finances into order. Um, Since then the finance minister and others have been given slightly less confrontational interviews and it looks like maybe in the long run they'll have no choice but to sort of do what the IMF tells them but it's um it's a measure of how um controversial this issue is becoming across Europe and in practical terms what does a downgrade of a country's credit mean well it's a good question because um in theory it makes um um it more expensive for the country to borrow and investors are less likely to want to borrow um, from a weaker credit um in, in practice it's often the other way around the credit rating agencies are just responding to what's already apparent in the in the market in the prices and um we'll find out there's a, there is an Irish debt sale fairly soon and um uh, and it'll be interesting to see if they have to pay more to to borrow than they would have done before this but um 
it's not automatically clear that they uh, th- that they will do. And who's going to be next? Spain, Italy. Well, there are a number of countries on downgrade watch, including the UK, um, Spain, and Portugal, and Italy. Um, certainly are on a lot of people's sort of um, worry list. But um, frankly, a lot of Europe is facing the same problems. Dan Roberts. 40 years ago, Brunel's famous steamship, SS Great Britain, returned to Bristol from the Falkland Islands. 100,000 people lined the River Avon to see the ship return. Today, people involved in the salvage operation were reunited to celebrate the 40th anniversary. Stephen Morris reports. My name is Lyle Craigie Halkett. I was a salvage diver on the salvage of this ship to Great Britain. We believed she had a crack in the side, which is on the starboard side, but we also knew that the ship was starting to hog. In other words, she was, she was starting to break apart. So one of our jobs very, very early on was to see the extent of this crack. So to do that, we had to tunnel underneath the ship, and that meant removing all the mud that she was sitting on and make a, a safe enough entry and exit, if you like, in case it suddenly caved in on us. So we had to be quite careful. But once again, something we were accustomed to doing. And when we got underneath, we were dismayed to find that she was actually broken completely, right round to the keel, which, in general terms of any other ship, you'd say, well, that's the end of it. It's a constructive total loss. That, that ship ain't going anywhere. But with perseverance, we, we got her salvaged. The mattresses were used exactly for this enormous crack if you like that had gone down it wasn't a crack it was a bit of a meter wide in places where the ship was actually starting to fall apart but still hinged on the port side what you stuffed mattresses into the ship we stuffed we stuffed mattresses into this hole because difficult to make cement patches or anything for a hole of that magnitude where did you get them all from we put out a call on the local radio and luckily being a Falkland myself i was able to know the way to do things that is over the local radio put a call out for anybody who had mattresses they don't want to keep anymore bring them down to the public jetty and they'd be gratefully accepted unfortunately a lot of the mattresses although we didn't say it at the time a lot of the mattresses were not quite the type we wanted we wanted the old horsehair mattresses which are rather thought to be lots more of in the forecast and even the straw mattresses perhaps but anyway we did get a lot of interior sprung mattresses which weren't much good for anything except sleeping on or something like that but we we you know, we, we did have enough mattresses anyway, and we got a lot. We got a hell of a lot of mattresses, I think, probably about 60 or 70. So the people really did everything they could to, to help us on that one. My name is Ivor Boyce, and I was involved in the towage of the Great Britain from Avermouth, via Cumberland Basin, to the dry docks. Which was quite a feat. Well, it, it turned out to be, yes, but for us at the time, it was an everyday job. What you, what's your most vivid memory of that day? Well, the, the real memory of the job was when we had a little problem uh, on turning her around in the channel, Bristol Channel, ready to enter the Avemouth River entrance. Uh, one of the tow lines parted, and snapped, and uh, there was then cause for concern for a few minutes luckily the captain of the bow tug saw the danger acted promptly and avoided any real big problems and then you got it down into the river and the crowds were there lining the river oh 
thousands, hundreds, well, they say hundreds of thousands. I wasn't able to count them, obviously, but each bank vantage point that's on both sides of the river was crowds and crowds and crowds of people, eight, ten deep sometimes. And what do you think when you see the ship now? Well, uh, as we said at the time, us people who were in the business, when she came and we looked at it and we saw what it was, just a heap of rubbish, junk, fit for the scrapyard, and we all, as I said before, questioned the sanity of the people that were involved in trying to restore it. But as you see now, we were all proven wrong. Absolutely marvellous job they've done. Stephen Morris reporting. Guardian Daily was produced today by Andy Duckworth. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.